Welcome to my den. You know, one of the things I love most about recording podcasts is I get to go behind the scenes into parts of these incredible guests that you just may not get to hear on any other podcast. You know, in short form content, when guests like uh, today's guest appear on um, our news outlets or even on social media, we only get these bite-sized glimpses. But today you're going to hear a 60-minute conversation with the legendary Robbie Kelman Baxter, who is literally the woman, the brain behind Netflix's subscription model. Yep, yeah, this woman is the reason that Netflix has a subscription model and that it works so effectively the way it does. She led the charge for shifting companies to subscription-based models and economies. And in fact, her first book, The Membership Economy, was named a top 10 marketing book of all time. You are in for a treat today. We're going to explore Robbie's background, the power of poetry of all things, and really her personal look at a lot of different angles, not just in business, but on personal life as well. Um, one of the questions I love to ask a guest before they come on the show is, what's something that you are passionate about that you rarely get to talk about on other podcasts or other media outlets? And today is a great example of someone who really goes there and says, this is what I am truly passionate about and want to share with people that I care about. If you enjoy today's conversation, you've got to check out The Forever Transaction, which is Robbie's second book. It is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really shows you why she's the queen of subscription models. And I encourage you to follow her on LinkedIn. She's an amazing follow. But overall, um, I mean, when you hear this woman's credentials, this is just an amazing episode to listen to. She has been um, all over the map working with over 100 organizations like the National Basketball Association, the Wall Street Journal, Microsoft, etc. So today's conversation just unpacks her wealth of knowledge in the areas of subscription and also different areas of life because I believe smart people have smart things to say outside of the smart niche that they picked. All right, before we dive into the episode today, don't forget that if you've got amazing Gen Z kids and you want me to be their mentor of sorts, send them our way to the brand new Diskills community. We are the first community of Gen Z plus GPT, and we're in the middle right now of the GPT Innovators Cup, where students are building businesses using the power of AI technologies and the mentorship from my team. So if you want your kids involved in the community or that competition, head over to diskills.io or click the link in the show notes to get them involved. All right, without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing Robbie Kelman Baxter. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Okay. 
I just have to ask you because you mentioned something last time we talked. You said you studied poetry in college. So what's one of your favorite poems or poets or like anything that has to do with poetry? Because I'm also a big fan. Oh, well, I wrote my thesis on Stevie Smith um, and I wrote it on her line drawing. So something that she did is she wrote, a, wrote poems and then if she was so moved, she illustrated the poems as well. So that was something that I found really interesting. Her probably most famous poem is called Not Waving But Drowning, which I think is a really good metaphor um, for the way a lot of people are feeling right now, um, where you think they're fine and you think they're just kind of telling you what's going on, the chaos of life, but really um, they're, they're suffering. Uh, so I love poetry for the way it can in very, very few words, can convey big emotion and um, and timeless, timeless emotion, timeless experiences that we all share. Oh gosh, I feel the same way. I feel like poetry is maybe not a lost art because I think to some extent it's captured in well-written song lyrics, but mm -hmm. I feel like so few people read poetry anymore. And I actually have a, you can't see it, but I have a whole series of these books that have been since like moth eaten they were in my grandfather's basement before he passed last year um for like decades and his grandfather passed these like collections of poetry you know it's like walt whitman and john dunn and, and all these people so i actually have that sitting on my shelf and i open them from time to time just to like feel refreshed um but i'm not familiar with with stevie smith that i'll have yeah. to look this up so she's great she's kind of early 20th century but, you know, it's funny what, what you're saying about the poems and people not reading them as, as much. I, I feel like, you know, when I was a kid, um, and I don't know how much, they did it a little bit, I guess my kids did this too, where you have to memorize poems. And, you know, you have to memorize, you know, whatever, you know, a John Donne poem, or a, like you said, you know, a, a couple of stanzas from a Walt Whitman poems are long. Um, so you're not usually required to, to learn them all. Um, but, you know, when you know them, then it comes back at these crazy moments in your life. And you're like, you know, the, you know, two roads diverged in a wood or, you know, whatever it can be, you know, Emily Dickinson or, you know, I think Dickinson and Robert Frost and stuff are the ones that most, most people these days know the, the most, at least in the United States. Um, but you have that and it's like this little gift um, that makes a moment more poignant, richer, easier to understand, easier to connect. And honestly, you know, you, you talked about, you know, losing your, your grandfather. Um, and I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, you know, I hope his, his memory is a blessing for, for you and everyone who knew him. And, and I think, you know, as you get older, the, the poems become more important. Like in, in, in this kind of is about this, you know, investing. Like it's hard to it's hard to read poetry. It is much easier to read a novel and it is even easier to watch video. Um, but I think the value, the lasting power of it um, is, is the payoff. So it's all about are you willing to invest in a happier future? No, this is so good. I I feel the same way about music, about poetry. And to your point, it comes up at the strangest times. It's like, whether it's a time of celebration, I'm trying to think of the last time a, a song or a poem just came to me. And sometimes it's, you know, at night or in dreams. And it's like, it is very poignant. And um, I actually... I did poetry competitions when I was younger. I'm sure. Did your kids do something like this too? Yeah. <laughs> okay. My oldest one did. Yeah. That's awesome. So like, the, you know, there was the poetry competition and the Shakespeare, you know, memorization competitions, performance. 
And, um, and those poems, I could probably still like recite them years and years and years later. And I've even used them, you know, I, 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 me much like you speak all over the country and I've I'll sometimes find myself using the poems as an illustration or a metaphor for something in business we're about to talk about. So it, they show up so, so interestingly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting topic, but it's it's also interesting that you say um, that Stevie Smith was talking about um, what do you say it's called? Not waiting, but not drowning? waving, not no, waving, not waving, but drowning. But drowning. So there, there, nobody saw her, the dead girl as she. But it's 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 a poem about somebody who was out on a beach day in the water, and she's going like this, and everybody's waving back at her. Wow. So what, what would you say, like, what was your thesis on? What metaphor did you draw from that? Well, the thesis was about how she used the drawings, the line drawings, and what, whether they, I mean, there's, I guess, a lot of controversy about whether um, adding illustration um, diminishes or adds to the words, right? Because it's kind of the same way, you know, that people feel about, you know, a book being made into a movie. Some people are like, I never read the book, but the movie was amazing. Other people are like, the book was so much better, um, the move because what it, what it, what visual does is it it takes away some of the ability to imagine what is happening for yourself and to imbue it with your own experience. Um, so that's what that's what I wrote about. Um, but this poem, which I think I, I've seen like paintings that have been been done based on these these words, um, and you know people still talk about that concept, the not waving but drowning, which I think is so. I, mean, I think people feel that a lot. Like, I am not waving. I am telling you, I am dying out here. I need help. And everybody's like, yep, mm-hmm, you know. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we need, to, we need to be better able to sort of read signals and, and recognize catastrophe um, while it's happening before it's too late. I could not agree more. We had a guest a few weeks ago named Jen Marr. And she was part of the Sandy Hook crisis. And then she was running the Boston Marathon when the bombs went off. Like literally she has wow. been super close to multiple disasters in our country. And that led her to basically starting this whole company where she teaches people how to have empathy when you encounter someone who's in crisis, like whether it's a child who just attempted suicide or, you know, a, the loss, losing of a loved one or whatever that might be. And something she said, which is really, really interesting, is she talks about this concept of the awkward zone, like the fact that, to your point about waving, and like we're all waving when, and not realizing mm-hmm. that someone's drowning, the same thing happens if most humans run into someone at the grocery store and don't have a clue what to say. Like we all jump to, you know, if you run into someone whose child just attempted suicide, what do we tend to do? Like we tend to avoid or we tend to um, try to fix everything, right? Or we tend to jump to conclusions or like all the natural human tendencies instead of realizing like, how do I actually help this person in this space when they're in, in such a terrible, terrible crisis? So anyway, it's it sounds like that poem almost illustrates that in a sense. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit different because there's, there's sort of two parts that I think are both important. So one of them is... I think what, as her name, Jen, Jen Marr, what she was talking about, which is, I think after the event happens, how do you help somebody um, deal with the aftermath versus I think what, what 
Steve Smith was talking about in this poem is what do you do when the crisis is happening in front of you? This is actually where I thought you were going with, with um, Jen's work. Um, what do you do when somebody's having a heart attack at Safeway? Right? Do you say, oh, that's weird that she's standing here like this and coughing and it's so gross and, you know, why is she blocking the aisle? Or do you say, oh, my God, I think there is something really wrong here. Let me take a beat and see if she's okay, which is, I think, is a different thing. One of them is about after the event. And one of them is about can you actually recognize uh, a catastrophe as it's happening? Can you see, oh, you know, People are running in every direction. I don't exactly know what happened, but I think something really bad happened. How can I help? Instead of, I got to get home, right? You know, if, if this if this marathon's not going to happen, I better just get home, right? Right. <laughs> um, so look, what you're saying is, if you see someone who's in a potential crisis, instead of avoiding leaving, avoiding and leaving, yeah. or just, you know, oh my gosh, I've got so much to deal with in my day. You know, I'm just going to pretend nothing was happening. Like, how yeah. do you actually step in in that moment? Yeah. Can we be on the alert as human beings to other people's tragedies? It's sort of like, you know, the other poem that's like this is the, um, oh, I can't think of what it's called. The, the one about um, uh, Icarus and Daedalus and Icarus flying, uh, you know, it's about the, the uh, oh, I can't think of what it's called, but it's, this poem about um, how, you know, tragedy is happening up in the sky as Daedalus is watching his son's wings melt and he falls to his death and everybody else is just going on with their day, right? Because nobody really notices that your tragedy is happening over here, you know, and they're just, they're just going on with their day. So it's just important, I think, to be attuned to that. Thanks for sharing that. I, yeah. it's, it's so easy for me, I mean, even thinking about this moment right now, the, um, <laughs> the uh -huh. tendency as a podcaster, and you know this too, from hosting your own show, what, remind me what it's called. Uh, my show is called Subscription Stories, True Tales okay. from the Trenches. I love that. So, I mean, you, you know this, the tendency is always to jump to, you know, the meat of the conversation and all that when sometimes there's so much more to just learn about a person's story than, you know, than, than that meets the eye. I'm just really, really curious. How often do you talk about poetry with, within your business community or your like immediate network? Um, not, not that often. I mean, so there's different places. So my, my professional network, not that often. Um, I have one colleague, um, Libby Wagner, who is, she's sort of known as the poet of the boardroom. And I've done a fair amount of work with her and um, I've spent a lot of time with her, learned from her, you know, we've been in a mastermind group for many, many years. Um, and so that's a place where, where poetry comes up. And, and one of the things that she does is she often will open a workshop or a speech with a poem um, and invite people to close their eyes and just relax into it. And I think that really sets the space often for deeper, deeper conversation and also greater focus. You know, if you have to close your eyes, that means you have to stop looking at your phone and, and so on. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should do more poetry in my work and maybe I should talk about this more and, and bring it in. Um, and by the way, for your listeners, that poem that I was trying to remember is called um, Musée de Beaux-Arts. Um, and it's by Auden. And it starts about suffering. They were never wrong, the old masters. And it's about a, a painting that he sees at this museum in Belgium um, where Icarus and Daedal you know, Daedalus is in despair and Icarus is falling out of the sky and the rest of the community, the ox and the cow and everybody else are just going on with their day. So, 
Thank you for sharing that. And I love this idea of poet of the boardroom. I'm going to have to start doing that. <laughs> reading reading a poem, it's such a, that's just amazing. I love that. Um, okay, this is not really a segue, but I have to know, how do you go from studying poetry in, in college to being an expert in subscriptions? Yeah, so, you know, I, I went to college, you know, in the 80s, in the late 80s, and my parents had said to me, you know, if you get really good grades and you get into a, a, a really good liberal arts college, you can study whatever you want. And we are confident that you will figure out how to support yourself, but you don't have to study communications because you think you'll go into business or, you know, government because you think you're going to go into law or, um, you know, th those journalism because you think you'll be a writer. You can study whatever you want. And we are confident that you will have a great career. And, and I don't think people say that anymore. Um, I'm not sure. Um, and I said it to my kids. I have, I have three sort of college-age young adults. But um, so I studied poetry. My parents, my dad was a lawyer. Um, and then he became a venture investor. Uh, so we did not talk about poetry. My mom was, was a kindergarten teacher for a brief period and then worked at home and then became a controller in a company. Um, so... You know, there was no, not a lot of poetry at home, but it was something that was really, really interesting to me. And, you know, it's funny because I, I grad, you know, when I was graduating from college, you know, I was interviewing for these jobs in, you know, real, I worked in interviews for jobs at a real estate investment trust. And I remember the guy said to me, you know, how can I be sure that you won't sit and look out the window when you're supposed to be working on spreadsheets and think about poems that you like, which was, you know, in hindsight, such a condescending, rude question like, you know, here I was, you know, I had really good grades. I had done all these things. I'd run all these organizations in college. Like I was obviously a go-getter. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to sit and look out the window and not do my work. Like, what, you know, what does that have to do with poetry, first of all? Um, but it was, you know, it was a little tricky getting the first job. Um, but after that, you know, as, as you know, people mostly you get your next job based on what you've done prior to that. Um, sometimes school is a signaling factor. And what I always said about poetry as a signaling factor is that I am I have an ability to do a close read. Um, I have an ability to um, see patterns and draw conclusions. Um, and I'm strong with words, right? Poetry is hard. Poetry is harder than almost any other kind of writing because there's so few words on the page. And not just the meaning of the word, but the sound of the word and the way the word looks on the page all come into play, which is not the case in, in most other forms of writing. Um, so that's, anyway, long-winded way of defending poetry as a, as a concentration in college. And then just to be totally candid, I did go to business school. So that kind of cleaned up my resume a little bit. Um, and people don't usually pull all the way back to poetry now. They don't usually see it. Um, and, you know, my subscription work, a lot of that is I'm a writer. And I'm Can a I researcher. Can I for just a second, yeah. Robbie? I want to continue hearing your, your story because it's fascinating. But I have to ask you. So when you were talking about that almost stereotype from studying poetry and trying to get into your first job, I hear this from a lot of students now who... So bear with me. This will take a second to explain, but I'm really curious to get your thoughts. So there's been generations, right, where, you know, my parents... In, and their parents all encouraged their kids to get a degree because there was a quote unquote social contract that said, if you have a degree, you were, are guaranteed a job, right? And we know that's no longer true just based on how the market is changing. 
But one of the pieces of work that I'm doing right now is basically helping shift this mindset across our country from a focus on degrees to the skills, helping people acquire skills that are basically proven, demonstrable ways they can show they've got what it takes for a job. So here's here's my supposition, just drawing from all this research and the conversations we've been having. Where the social contract used to be, you know, you have a degree of any type, and I, th- I think you said this a second ago, where if you had a degree, you were, it was basically proving you could get through four years of school, right? Like it didn't matter what your degree was, but you had to get through the four years. But what happens when you are now in a society where if you get a degree in, you know, say something in the arts, usually I would say these stigmas apply to poetry, theater, writing. I have a friend right now who had a struggle getting a job as a theater major but her, you know, her true skill set was incredible based on what she learned in theater. But of course, no one in the business world could recognize that. So here's my supposition. Where a degree used to land you a job, you know, years ago in, in former generations, or there was a guarantee, I feel like it almost now, even if you pursue a degree, boxes you in to a stereotype around whatever your major was. So instead of being seen as a person let's say you have that that poetry degree and you're trying to get a job right now in 2023, you might be seen as someone with far fewer skills than you actually have acquired through that degree because your major is one word. It's, you know, poetry. It's not something broad. So I'm, I'm I guess to, to rephrase my question, have you seen this in um, I don't know, with your kids or with within your circles where if someone has a degree in something that seems very specialized, but underneath the surface, they have problem solving skills, creativity, you know, out of the box thinking, writing, composition, you know, all the skills you have with a poetry degree. Do you see, you know, business leaders or hiring managers not really able to shift from what that title is and understand what really went into that and what which of the skills that person might actually have. So I, I don't think this is, well, I think that it's become harder for people to get jobs just because they have a degree, not because of the specific specificity of the, the name of their concentration or their major, but because there's so many of them. And because having a degree can mean so many different things, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're hardworking or good at anything, honestly. You could get through a lot of colleges and a lot of programs without working that hard, from what I understand (laughs) from my kids' friends. Um, So first of all, a degree is not a degree, a degree, you know, it's not, it's not a monolithic thing. And so companies need to be more um, sophisticated about what it means. What does it mean to get a degree from this school or that school and this concentration or that concentration? Um, So that's one whole big thing. And I would even say that college, the experience of college or university is a bundle of benefits. Um, And you get a bunch of different things depending on the school, depending on the major, depending on what activities you do. Um, It can be a really fun time. It can be an incredibly intense learning time. It can be a time of intellectual discovery or it can be a time of nose to the grindstone, get the skills I need to get the job I want. Um, and so you have to choose what bundle of benefits you want. I think getting a liberal arts degree um, is not necessarily the most predictable way to get a good first job out of college, but it's a very good way to live an interesting life and to have a lot of choices and also to have, as we discussed, 
a lot of really interesting experiences and knowledge to that make for a, a better life and make you a, a better citizen of the world. Um, I think there's a definite kind of pre-professionalism that's creeping up in schools, which is I'm going to go to this college and take these classes so I can get this job the day I graduate. I think that is super short-sighted, actually. So your your point about, you know, you know, I'm guessing you said your friend that was in theater had a hard time getting a job. I'm sure your friend that studied, you know, engineering or, you know, computer science for, you know, healthcare major. I mean, it seems like these majors are so specific, got right into a job because they're there wasn't as much of a leap of faith that the company needed to take to know that this person could do the job. I would also say that your friend, the theater major, um, might not have the actual skills required to start the job running on the first day. Um, you, you might say, but she's really smart. She could learn them really quickly. Um, it's not that big a deal. My daughter, you know, graduated with a degree in history and, lit, history and literature, um, incredibly good researcher, wanted to work on a podcast. They asked her if she knew podcast editing software as a criteria for getting the job. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'll learn that in five minutes. I've learned all these different softwares. And they were kind of more interested in somebody who hadn't gone to college, but who knew how to use that software than somebody that had all of her skills. But it took her a week to get that credential. And then she got the job and then she got promoted twice really quickly. Right. So what I would say for people is if you want to get the job right out of school, great, go be pre-professional, go just build your skills, whatever. But having the broader experience, learning how to ask questions. Here's here's another sort of interesting point. I had an opportunity to talk to um, Susan Wojcicki, who's the CEO of YouTube. And she studied, uh, I'm trying to remember if she studied Histon Lit or social studies in college. Um, but she was saying, you know, when we hire, you know, of course, you know, lots of engineers come in, lots of computer science people come in. But as people get promoted, it's those people with the liberal arts background that are better able to manage, better able to connect the dots and put together cogent arguments, um, better able to think about like they've taken classes in ethics and philosophy. Um, so for, for young people who are choosing a major, if you have the luxury to invest in the future, these other classes are really helpful, the theater major, what have you, but be prepared for someone to ask you, are you going to be looking out the window all the time um, and not doing your work? Or why can't you use this, you know, podcast software app? Um, we can't hire you. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. And I think people aren't, most people don't think about that when they choose college. And, and often is my last point, but I do think it's true. A lot of young people choose college based on, you know, does the college have a lazy river? Um, what kind of, you know, Greek life do they have? Um, is it in a warm place or near the ski slopes? Um, those are great things. I'm not knocking it. But then you have to remember that your college experience, the bundle of benefits that you're getting, you know, maybe the fun time benefit is much bigger and the getting you a job right out of college benefit is going to be much smaller. And the helping you make sense of the world and find your way and be able to switch careers um, as your interests change will be very, very small. Thank you for that. That I feel like everyone needs to hear that, especially students as they're thinking about, about their degree. And especially coming from your experience as you know a woman who's incredibly successful and has your own business and has taken this journey and studied something like poetry. And you know, you you can look back in hindsight and say, these are the skills that I developed through 
not just my degree, but where it, you know, led my brain and my critical thinking ability and, and communication ability. Um, so, okay, please continue with your story that I love that detour, but thank you for, uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was quite a detour. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, I'll try to be briefer. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I went to college, I studied uh, English. Um, I were, I ended up being an urban fellow. I worked for the city of New York for two years doing real estate development. Um, cause someone took a chance on me. Um, right. And, uh, Loved doing that. But at the end of my second year, I realized it was going to be hard to get promoted without specific skills, to your point. Um, if I wanted to stay in New York City real estate, I needed to go to real estate school. I needed to get a degree in, in, in real estate development because um, I just didn't I didn't know the basics about whatever real estate finance, construction, blah, blah, blah. I did not know any, you know, engineering. Um, I could have. They would have kept me. But I said, I'm going to go to a company that has the resources to invest in training because Working for the city of New York, they didn't have that much in the way of resources for training. So as a second kind of important point, when you're thinking about your career, um, especially early on, you know, there's a lot that's being said about, you know, learn on the job and learn on the fly and you can do anything and just jump in and see what happens. But, you know, some places actually train you to become a CEO. They actually give you the rotations. Um, they pay for you to take classes. They have a formalized mentor program. And the problem sometimes with, with small companies um, and, and thinly capitalized companies is they can, only, they can only put you in a job that you can do today. They have no resources to develop you to do something much bigger tomorrow, whereas a lot of bigger companies do have those resources. So just a plug for that. So I worked for Booz Allen, which is a strategy consulting firm. Great training. Amazing. I recommend it to everybody if you can get those kind of jobs. Um, did that for two years and they actually said, you know, you need another big leap forward in terms of your training. We'll pay for it, but you need to go to business school. And so I ended up going to business school. I didn't end up going back to booze. I ended up going into, you know, startups and, and tech, which was great. Um, and then, uh, I guess five years into that, I got laid off while I was on maternity leave and, um, started my independent consulting path. Um, and, uh, if you want to be a successful independent in this world, you have to have a brand and you have to be an expert on something uh, and be known for something. And so uh, eventually I sort of found my way into subscriptions and membership about 20, 22 years ago. And uh, it's been a really fun journey. So that was a long-winded story of how I got from poetry to, to, to subscriptions. But, but that's kind of the, the step-by-step. No, thank you for sharing. I, so just even taking a backtrack for a second, where did you get the skills to, you know, be in the subscription world with this sort of journey? I know you spent, you said you spent some time in startups and tech, but when did that become a pinnacle focus for you? So the, I worked at three different product, uh, three different tech companies um, between, you know, the time I graduated from business school and the time I hung out my own shingle, mostly kind of in product management, product marketing, marketing in that general area. And all three of them, in hindsight, were SaaS companies. Um, that's not what they were called then, but they were recurring revenue models. They were kind of a lighter platform. They were designed for an on, solving an ongoing problem for customers. And then when I got laid off, at first, I just needed to pay the mortgage, right? I had two small children, and we just bought a house. And, you know, I was like, anything that they'll pay me for, I'll do. That is the candid, honest, God's honest truth. Um but then I sort of said, okay, now that I'm, I'm more comfortable that I can make a living as a contractor, consultant, whatever, where am I going to focus, right? I need a focus. I need to be an expert on something. And I knew that like saying I'm an expert on strategy was too big. Um, 
people at McKinsey and Booz Allen are experts on strategy, right? They have hundreds of or thousands of people, tons of intellectual property. They can claim this huge category called strategy. Harder for one person to claim to be an expert on all things strategy. I was like, okay, well, what's narrower, but not so narrow that it's boring. And my fifth client um, as an independent consultant was Netflix, um, which was was luck, right? I didn't know, but I I, w- I kept asking myself these questions. What do I want to be an expert in? What is something that nobody else is covering that is big enough and juicy enough that I could be excited about it? And, you know, kind of ties into the things I'm interested in, which are, you know, strategy, marketing, um, human behavior. And at Netflix, I just saw how rigorously they were focused on retention um, as much as they were focused and how that impacted everything, acquisition, engagement, who they're willing to partner with, how they talked about their product. Um, No free toasters with sign up for them, right? Because you don't want someone to sign up for the toaster. You want them to sign up for the content, sign up for the offering. And I just fell in love with that. And then I started sort of saying to people, well, people started calling me and saying, hey, we heard you worked with Netflix. We want to be the Netflix of, you know, bicycles or healthcare, medicine, uh, you know, finance, whatever. And I started saying, I help companies. I didn't know what to call it, but I said recurring revenue, retention. If you really value loyalty with your customers, if that's an important part of your strategy, that's what I study. Um, and the calls started coming in. I, you know, I, uh, SurveyMonkey, uh, Intuit um, were kind of my next two big clients. Um, and then I was kind of off to the races. That's amazing. And around what year was this whole Netflix thing happening? So I was working with them from um, 2000, was it like 2001 to 2004-ish? So these Um, were the the early days. They had just gone public. They were still afraid of Blockbuster. Uh, Walmart, during during my tenure, I I worked on about 12 different projects uh, for them. But during that tenure, um, you know, one of the really big things that was going on was that Walmart got into um, subscription DVDs. And it's always stuck with me because at the time, right, we're this pretty small company. Company just went public. You know, we um, had a presence across the United States, had experimented in in the UK, but weren't that well known. And then Walmart was like, you know, Walmart, Deep Pockets, biggest company, all of the stuff. And we thought, well, surely they will do everything we're doing. They will copy everything we've done. And then they will throw a lot of money at it, plus all of their connections and everything. And we will be crushed. But what turned out to actually be the case was that one little department at Walmart didn't get a ton of resources, um, and they weren't in a position to move as quickly as Netflix. And I think this is the most important thing, the way a subscription business works, the culture of a subscription business, the metrics that they use, the roles they have, the way their org structure works is just really different from a transactional business, uh, from a traditional retailer, um, from a lot of the business models. Um, that people are more familiar with. So it's actually a lot harder than it looks to throw money at something and get a subscription going. Have you seen in just the past few years any large organization, well, I guess we should probably take a different model because now subscriptions are becoming the norm. But just as a general question, have you seen any large organization that's done a really good job of completely shifting from one model to another, something as big as, you know, the model from, you know, 
as your example, Walmart, who couldn't shift to this agile sort of subscription model? Is there anything happening right now that you would say is similar? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Walmart has gotten a lot better at subscription. Um, and they have Walmart Plus, which is doing very well. Um, uh, another example, uh, Microsoft. Uh, I, they were a client for, for quite some time. They've been a client for quite some time. They um, Office 365, I don't know if you use Office, um, but if you do, you probably subscribe. Uh, back in the day, you bought a box and you, you, know, you could load it on one computer and then they figured out a way to make it so you could load it on up to five computers in your family. Um, but now almost everybody subscribes to Office 365 and they've really changed not just um, the way they sell their software, but also um, the way they build it. It's designed for subscription. It's designed for frequent updates. It's designed um, for, for collaboration. And, you know, Microsoft owns uh, LinkedIn. Uh, and, you know, that LinkedIn ethos, you can feel it kind of seeping into a lot of the things that, that Microsoft does as well. They also have Xbox um, and they have subscriptions there. So that's really interesting example. Uh, most major um, B2B software companies now have a software as a service offering, almost every single one of them. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many examples. Electronic Arts, a company I worked with um, quite a bit through their transition, um, you know, they used to sell their games in a box, 60 bucks. You buy the game FIFA or SimCity or whatever it is that you like to play. Um, and then you own it and you play it to death and then you're done. Um, now you can subscribe and get access to um, a light version of a lot of games. Um, and then if you like those games, you can do more. Um, but it's a different way first of selling, but then ultimately of, of the actual product management, how you actually design the offering for engagement and retention as opposed to just designing it for acquisition. You know. It makes sense. And you know, it's interesting you say this because as a native digital, I guess you could somewhat say my generation grew up in the era of SaaS, like we are not used to anything else. We're so used to SaaS, it's become the norm for us. And I can't even remember, I can barely, barely remember for about maybe a year when my family would get Netflix DVDs, but I can't really remember beyond, you know, the current model where it is completely digital. And um, I would say the same for, you know, Office 365. I've only known the subscription model. You know, I've only known all these things. So I'm really curious, and then I, I want to get to <laughs> careers and all this, because I'm sure the translation from subscriptions to careers is fascinating. But would you say there's any movement happening right now that would be equal and its equivalent of like, a giant shift in our yeah. entire way from what what would you call the era pre-SaaS? What's, what's the term for that? Enterprise software. I mean, that was okay. for, for B2B, enterprise software. Um, but I think about also, you know, transactional mindset. Like most companies sure. were really, like you were, they didn't know who you were. If you walk into McDonald's and you buy, you know, a filet of fish, they don't know if you come every day, every month, you've never been there before. They don't have a program to onboard you and sort of show you what else they have and get you to make it a habit and get you addicted to their fries. Um, now that's how they think, right? Right. Um, I think we've seen, you know, from my perspective, this move from ownership to access, from one-time transaction to ongoing relationship has hit a lot of spaces already. It's hit certainly software, certainly content, and content is everything from video content, um, print, newspapers, audio, Spotify, also learning, educational, people take classes, and also um, games. All of those, you know, in the content area have all been moved to relationship-oriented, subscription-based. Um, 
retail consumer products have already kind of are kind of making that move right now. And I think the next big places are um, healthcare and uh, manufacturing. So for example, Peloton, right? Right now, it used to be that you'd buy your device, you'd take it home and you'd either, you know, use it every day or use it as a coat hanger. Choice was yours. They had no idea. They didn't care. You already paid for it. With Peloton, after that first year, um, if you don't use it, they don't make any more money from you. So it's really important, not just that you buy it, but that you keep using it. So that changes how they design the piece of equipment itself, um, which is, is a really big change. Um, we're seeing that with Caterpillar, you know, in the heavy equipment space where they're thinking about how do you design heavy equipment um, for engagement um, and retention and additional value for people who are most loyal. Um, so that's really interesting. Internet of Things, you know, subscribing to your refrigerator, for example. Uh, iRobot was just bought by Amazon. You know, it's the little, uh, you know, vacuum that, that cleans your house automatically. It's so cute. <laughs> it's, it's so cute, but also it's deadly because it actually tracks the layout of your home, right? They can tell, oh, here's carpeting. That must be a bedroom. Oh, here's hardwood. That must be a living space. Oh, here's tile. That must be about, oh, she has three bathrooms. Oh, you know. We're noticing dog hairs in the iRobot. She must have a dog. And then Amazon can use that learning from you to deepen the relationship. That's how they would say it, deepen the relationship. You might say it, that's really creepy. They know everything about me. Um, but that's kind of the next, the next thing that's coming. And then healthcare, which is, um, you know, you can subscribe to any number of services for chronic health issues, um, get a better experience um, with, your, with your provider, with your expert, your doctor, your nurse practitioner. Um, and get subscriptions to meds delivered to your home. I can't wait for that. I cannot wait. Actually, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not in my area. We always get hit last with everything. It sucks. Okay, so let me ask you this before we get into careers, because this has come up. This may be a difference in native digital and native analog thinking, maybe not between you and I, but just the market at large. So when it comes to privacy, so your example about you know iRobot, as a native digital, and I think a lot of my generation would agree with this, I don't know, statistically speaking, I don't even know that there's been too many deep studies on this. But when I think about privacy and, you know, what we're what we're supposed to be, uh, or the rights we're supposed to have in our country, et cetera, for things like uh, rights to privacy, when I think about advertising and how, you know, these large corporations are getting to know me and my preferences and my, you know, taste and they're serving up ads or products or whatever that match that, I think, yay, <laughs> like I, I would so much rather see this, you know, this very customized advertising or even sometimes I don't know what to buy. I like to see products mm -hmm. that are recommended to me, right? Or iRobot, maybe, you know, maybe it's creepy or somewhat to have a, a robot who knows my house layout and all of this, but ultimately, you know, what can be done with that information? And I guess as a native digital, I think most of us wouldn't necessarily think about you know, tailored ads as we might think about tailored ads as the limit, you know, but of course there's other implications like years into the future, maybe if you didn't take a certain vaccine or a certain drug, then you might be put on a list that could, the government could then get a hold of, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think native digitals think that far. I'm really curious, like what, what you hear or what you see when it comes to something like privacy, like all these subscription models that are getting to know us and our preferences and and all these things, where do you see, like, what do you hear from your clients or their customers or whatever um, 
are there concerns? Is there general acceptance? So, okay, first of all, it depends on the country. So Europe is much more respectful of privacy than the United States. Um, the United States is, is woefully behind, you know, protecting us. I think um, consumers, especially in the U.S., and especially, I think you're right, younger, uh, you know, native digital uh, folks, um, underestimate the power that they're giving to corporations. The, you know, nothing is free. If it, if it feels like it's free, then you're the product, right? That's the old adage. If, if you feel like you're, if you're getting something for free, that's because you're the product um, and they're selling you. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, an old school ladies night, right? It's like, oh, it's so great. We can go to the bar and it's free drinks for women. They don't even do this anymore because it's sort of a terrible idea. But, um, you know, it used to be that, you know, they'd say ladies night and ladies drink free, right? So men are willing to pay a high premium to go someplace where a lot of ladies have been drinking for free. Right, right. Right. And I think it's sort of the same. Like I'm giving up all of this information to have my life be more convenient and more easy. Um, but at some point that could come around to bite me. And I'm not thinking very hard about what that is. I'm not that sophisticated about it. It's not my area of expertise. I'm just a consumer. Um, I'm probably hoping and trusting that my government is protecting me. Um, which I, I don't think it is. I don't think it. Can, I mean, I think we've under under invested in in those kinds of uh, privacy protections. The the companies are so huge and powerful and lobby so much, um, and I think, you know, the really technically savvy young people are going to companies where they can make a lot of money and not going into like you know government regulatory <laughs> jobs. Right? That's not where people want to go. Um, and I, I actually think it's a big it's a big issue for our country. I think we're we're um, we're really giving up a tremendous amount in the name of a little more convenience. I do it too. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I do it too. I, I love when the ads are served up and it's what I want. And I love when, you know, I log into a newspaper and, you know, the articles that I like pop up. Um, but I'm not sure that that is, I actually am pretty sure that it's not in the best interest for us for the long term. Thank you for that. And I'm sure we could have a we could have a whole, you know, separate hour-long conversation about just that topic. I mean, the implications of, you know, every time there's a crisis around data, how it seems like the government uses that to encroach even more on our data. And, you know, I'm someone who, from years ago in high school, we, um, I used to debate. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, um, and one of our resolutions one year was about uh, national surveillance and the Patriot Act and, and all of that. But I know, you know, probably 99% of my generation doesn't have any clue what's in the bills that are getting passed that allow access to data, et cetera. Um, anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Um, but thank you for your thoughts, because I agree, this is a very sort of poignant time right now with how not just companies use our data, but what they're giving the government access to and who we trust. And it, it brings up some pretty large questions that, you know, get down to every sort of thing from ethics to, you know, <laughs> what what we're, um, the rights we're supposed to have in our, in our country. Anyway, let's jump to careers. I, I would love, so last time we talked about, or our last call, you said something really interesting that I want to dive more into. And if there's um, stories you want to go into from your career that paint this picture, I would love to hear this because, again, I think this is another message that parents need to hear for their kids and how how we guide um, students nowadays and also for leaders to hear as these 
students are coming into work and don't really know where they want to go long term. So you said something that I sort of lingered. It was lingering in my thoughts for days afterwards. You said, unlike what a lot of our um, schools and and thought leaders are teaching right now, which is find something that like find a job that makes you really happy and pursue your passion and find, you know, work that's within in alignment with your passion. Like that would be a very native digital Gen Z way of thinking about work. And you said, sometimes it's just better to have a job that pays the bills and explore your passion outside of this. So tell me more. What did you mean by that? And give us a journey. Yeah. So, so a couple things. One is um, I'm a big fan of a port- of thinking about your life as a portfolio, the same way that an investor would. And so there's a lot of different things that you that you want to get out of your life. Um, and sometimes you need more of this or less of that. So you want to think of it in that way. One of those things is security. One of those things is connection. One of those things is meaning. Um, one of those things is fun. Uh, lots of different things that we want in our life. Um, they don't all have to come from college. They don't all have to come from one job. So your job doesn't have to be the place where you have your friends and you have your meaning and you have your you know salary and your compensation and your security. Um, it's great if it all is in is in one bundle, but that's that's very hard. I think also um, in a lot of cases when people okay, couple things. People most people don't graduate from college um, or enter the workforce with a passion. Right. So that by itself puts a lot of pressure on people. Follow your passion. So my husband, um, who I met in college, professional baseball player, um, his passion was pretty darn clear. Right. He knew where he was going and what he was trying to do. Me, I was like, I don't know. I like to I like poetry and I like business and I like law and I like government and I like yoga. And, you know, I like to play the harp. You know, I could I could be a harpist. You know, who knows? Um, And. You know, if you don't know what your passion is, maybe try something that continues to open doors, right? I think a lot of people, by, quote, following their bliss, they close doors. They don't get the training they need early on. Um, they don't make the connections that are going to help them later on. They don't plant seeds that are going to grow into into a garden that can sustain them. They sort of jump from place to place and say, well, I'm just following my passions. Um, a lot of people I know who followed their passions ended up in jobs that don't pay very well, um, where they actually don't have the ability to make the kind of impact that they wanted because they never developed the right skill. Like they might say, I'm a great leader. I have a team of four, right? No, no one's going to hire them to lead 10,000, right? If you want to ultimately change the world, you know, th- there's lots of ways to, to do that, but it often comes from having a lot of resources at your disposal to make an impact, right? Having people following you, having resources given to you, um, to to make make big decisions. So what I would advise people to do is try to think about, you know, what do you want your life to look like in 10 years? And I know you can't possibly know what it's going to look like, but maybe create like three, two, three different visions. You know, maybe I'll be running a big company. Uh, maybe I'll be a thought leader that is, you know, the world expert on communication. Um, and, and try to just think about that and then map each one backwards and say, what would I have to do to get there? Um, what would be the proof points to get there? And then look at what you want to do next. Um, there are times when you're like, I don't care. I have to go follow my passion um, and, and you know, more power to you. But if you don't know what that is, think about where you can invest in the future, where, you can, where you'll have opportunities to learn, 
Um, we'll have opportunities to grow. We'll have opportunities to save money, right? If you start saving money when you're in your 20s, compound interest, magical thing, um, will put you in a much better position later on. And if you have some of those resources, it's just a lot easier um, to to take bigger risks later. Um, if you can't if you can't pay for your baby food, um, you know you can't go off and do great things at work. This is such a different perspective that I think very few people are talking about because there seems to be this, and this is all my generation. It's a large part of my generation holds to this idea that you should just follow your passions. And I think to some extent, it's become more possible than ever to do so, right? I mean, if you were an artist, no no longer do you have to be a starving artist. You can start a TikTok account and, you know, bring in clients in a way you never could before. But to your point, there's never going to be a time when you know, every single person, I don't think on this earth could study or, you know, do something within their line of passion and still make, to your point, the impact they want to make. They may think they are, you know, that's, that seems to be, well, okay, here's, here's um, an interesting mindset I see with my generation. It's this whole concept of FOMO. So you think if you don't have your life figured out by a very early age, that you're going to constantly be falling behind. You know, there's almost this this fear that what if I reach, you know, age 30 or even age 25 and I haven't really figured out my whole life path and where I'm going to be and the impact I'm going to make and be doing something I want on my own terms, then I've failed. So what what would you say to young people or even to parents who have students who are in this, I don't even know what to call it. It's like a zone of fear and just not wanting to fail. Like, what would you say to help parents navigate this with their students? What exercises could they do? What conversations could they have um, to help their students even figure out the possibilities for 10 years down the road? Yeah. I mean, I think um, so, so you kind of talked about two, dif- two different modalities for um, native digitals. One of them is the like, follow your bliss, future be damned, right? Just, I'm just going to go do what's what sounds exciting to me. And I'm going to go follow my art and, you know, not not be stuck in the grind and, you know, all of that and be a digital nomad and what have you. Awesome. And then there's the ones that are like, whoa, I'm 22 and you know, I don't know who my life partner is going to be. I don't know what my career is going to be. I don't even know if I want to continue with school. I don't even like my job, right? And those are sort of two different modalities. And it feels very all or nothing to me. And, you know, I would advise people to sort of, you know, try to find a happy medium, which is, you know, spend some time. And this is the same advice, actually, that I give to companies, which is spend some time with a vision for the future, big, big vision. You know, where do we want to be in 10 years? What does world domination look like? What would it look like if all my dreams came true, right? Um, Two, three, as I said before, two or three different scenarios of like lives that would make me really happy, right? And then honest assessment of what it would take to get there. I think a lot of people don't, like they kind of live in a world of magical thinking, like I'm going to run, I'm going to start and run a big company. And you're like, okay, great. How are you going to get the money to do that? How are you going to get people to follow you? How are you going to, you know, manage teams, how, you know, all these things? And, you know, they're like, oh, this figured out when I get there. Um, it's helpful sometimes to see how other people have done it and sort of think about how you would do it. 
Um, at the same time, you know, I, I started my career working in real estate development in New York City, right? Do I use that at all in California <laughs> doing subscriptions? No. Um, but, you know, you have to try something, right? And I learned a lot of things. I learned about, you know, I was interested in government. I was interested in policy. I thought I was going to go to law school. Um, I wasn't sure about law or business. Working in real estate development in a city agency was a good place to kind of learn about both of those and see what spoke to me. Um, also, I'll just say it was a fellowship. So it was another stamp of approval on my resume that sticks with me that I was an urban fellow. And, you know, I think those things do kind of their signaling effects in the long term. People understand what you did. Um, so if, you know, this is what I do. I have kids, you know, 19, 22 and 20, almost 25. Um, so right in this kind of space. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to know what you're going to do, but be excellent in what you're doing. Do it in the best way at the best places if you can. Um, and keep thinking about where you want to end up. Keep thinking about the big picture. Um, and I, I think it works well. You, I mean, you can ask my kids. They might also say I drive them crazy. But that is that is, those are conversations we have all the time, right? My daughter- What well, kid wouldn't say that about your parent? <laughs> I know, I know. So true. Um, but my oldest daughter is, um, you know, she studied history and literature. Um, she worked for two years on a, an HBO documentary about the COVID vaccine. And then she decided she wants to be a doctor. And so- now she's getting her pre-med requirements done. It's totally fine, right? She's figuring it out. Um, I don't begrudge her the two years of, of you know, working on movies um, as, you know, to, to get to where, you know, hopefully she's in a, on a path that, that's going to work well for her. Um, but she did it with excellence. Um, and she did it deliberately. And she had questions in her mind that she was trying to figure out. Do I like working on a movie? Do I, you know, how does it, how, what does it feel like to work on a movie versus working on a podcast, which was something she was moonlighting at? Um, she answered a lot of questions. What kind of research do I like to do? Um, and that has helped her figure out what the right path is for her. If I could summarize what you just said in something that I will take away from our conversation, you're almost prompting, and correct me if I heard this incorrectly, but you're almost prompting students to ask more questions as a way of finding answers. Yes. Throughout their entire career journey. So it's no longer you have to know exactly what you want to go to school for. You have to get that degree that's super specialized, and then you enter a job that you have for however long. No. Instead, the approach you're describing or what I'm hearing you say is pick something, explore it, something you, you think you have an inkling of interest in. Go work on an HBO documentary. And through that, you might find you're more interested in what you were documenting than the exactly. actual videography process. And you might find that your path takes turns. And honestly, Robbie, every organizational leader I talk to in my work, whether it's a business owner, an HR director I'm working with, they all say the key to success at any company, it doesn't matter what industry I'm working in, they all say the person they're looking for who's going to be successful in 2023 is someone who can adapt to change and who is agile all the time. Yeah. So what 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 is a better way of depicting the career journey than you start that sort of mindset and thinking at a very early age? And we need to not pressure students into having everything figured out by the time they're 18 or by the time they're 22. Maybe they take different detours throughout their whole life and add tools to their, you know, to their toolbox as they go along their whole journey and add value and excellence wherever they go. 
Yeah, yeah. I, you had me right up to that last that last point, which is, and 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 I, I you know, I think I think I agree with everything you said. But the the, the last bit, you know, I, so I think yes, having hypotheses, going after your hypotheses, and then prove them or disproving. I think that I, you know, I think I would love a career in documentary filmmaking. I don't mind that I won't make very much money because I think it's very intellectual. It's very important for the, you know, it's interesting to me. It's important for the world. I can make a living. Um, and I think I'll enjoy the tasks that I do every day. Well, she comes to learn that, you know, some of the tasks that she did every day were not tasks. Like, you know, a lot of making a movie is very physical. Like you're moving lights around, you're getting to the site and taking care of the guest. And, you know, there's a lot of, it's a lot of logistics. And she's like, I'm not interested. Like a lot of people love the logistics and the tech. And she's like, I love the storytelling. I love the research. That's the only part of this that is interesting to me. Um, and then you learn, you're like, okay, I was wrong about some things. I'm right about something. Now that I know that I love storytelling and research, you know, compensation's okay. Da, 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 da. What else can I do with that? You know, and it's it's that kind of a kind of a mindset. Um, and I think you're right. You always want to add value. You definitely need to be agile, um, able to to respond to a changing environment. I think the other thing is to be to work really hard, to have some grit, right? Um, as one of my bosses once said to me, sometimes someone just needs to move the chairs around. Um, I think that piece also comes into play. Um, you know, be excellent wherever you are and think in your mind, is this taking, am I on the right path? And it's just like the metaphor of like actual, like driving cross country or driving somewhere. You know, you might say, you know, I think the ideal vacation is to go to New Mexico. And then as you're driving, you might say, actually, this looks much better. And you stop. Or you might say, you know, we got to New Mexico and it turns out that, you know, I don't, it's dusty and I, I don't, you know, I'm not really into the crafts and I'm not really into the art. I like a city or I like mountains. You can sort of figure out as you go, but but you have to have a hypothesis or you don't really learn. And I think sometimes people are lazy about that, right? What did you think was going to happen at this job and how correct were you? And where were you incorrect? And what does that mean for the next decision? I think that's the piece that is, it's that rigor. It's the same thing with companies, right? You, you launch a product and you think these people are going to buy it and they don't. And you're like, why? We thought they were going to buy it for these reasons. Why didn't they buy it? Oh, this was the thing we got wrong. What do we do with that information? We change direction. Mm, mm, yes, that, that takes that to an even deeper level. Almost like viewing your career and your life as a science experiment that you're yeah. constantly reevaluating. Yeah, yeah, right. You're trying to find the elixir, the elixir of happiness where I'm, <laughs> yes. you know, doing, you know, I'm doing meaningful work that I love to do that is challenging and connecting with other people and making a living and able to support my family and all of that. Like, how do I get there? For me, what that elixir is going to be, that composition is different than what that elixir is for you. But we both need to look for it with rigor and keep testing and saying, this isn't, you know, this isn't magical. This isn't magical. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Um, we're getting close. So any last thoughts that you would leave us with? Uh, no, this was great. I mean, we went all over the place. It was really a fun, a fun conversation. I, I think that the, the thing that I hope to leave people with, um, whether you're thinking about your, your career, your early, early stage or, or later, um, and, and even if you're thinking about your, your organization, I think balancing your vision of what you're hoping, how things are going to turn out with the small steps you're taking today and tomorrow um, is a never-ending calibration. And I think most people in their careers and most organizations in their growth tend to over-index on one or the other. 
they're either really, really focused on that big end game. I got to get it all together. I got to figure it all out. I got to get to this place. I don't know how to do it. Or they're so focused on what they're doing today that they really don't think about where it's leading them. So, you know, I guess I'd say strive for balance. Strive for balance. Big picture, small picture. My, ma- microscope, telescope. Gosh, that's gold. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Robbie. This has been so fun. You're welcome back anytime, I'm sure. <laughs> Just on the topics we talked about today, we could have detour conversations for hours. So I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing and um, hope that even, you know, even one student in my periphery who I get to talk to today would take your advice. So I appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>